We are looking at the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you're a guest with us or you're relatively new, you're watching online, welcome you. We're so grateful for the opportunity to learn together. We're studying the book of Ephesians. It's in the New Testament. It's a letter to the church at Ephesus, a church that was divided, really. A church that was divided among people who were uh, stiff-necked legalists who followed all the rules. And then there were those who were... Um, lawless, rebellious, godless folks would consider themselves either polytheistic or atheistic. And then there were some in between who were wearied, exhausted by trying to keep all the rules and regulations. Weren't necessarily legalistic, but weren't necessarily rebellious, but who in between were like, this is, I'm so burnt out from my religion. And so Paul writes a letter to this church and says, I have good news God's got a story that's going to change your life. God's got a story that he has revealed to me, this mystery of Jesus, and I'm going to explain it to you, and all this bad news you're suffering with, I'm going to bring relief because I'm going to share some good news with you. And Paul turns the page on this chapter that the Ephesian church was experiencing of division, walls of hostility between the classes and races, between those who are insiders with God and those who are outsiders from God. And Paul writes this letter, and he tells him there's relief coming, and the relief is going to hit you as good news. And he goes on to explain what God's story is. And the first part of God's story, Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 1 to 3. So when you're reading, you're reading about all that God has done for us to change the game, to bring good news where there was bad news and division. And God's story, he starts by saying, here's the good news. God has reconciled. He, ex he has planned to bring everything in the universe together in unity under the Son of Jesus, under the Son, Jesus. And he said the second part of the good news is this double reconciliation where God doesn't just bring you back into right relationship with the Father in heaven vertically, but he also reconciles the insiders and outsiders horizontally, and he breaks down the wall of hostility, and he basically says God has no favorites anymore. Everybody has now been reconciled and unified into one new human being, and they have equal access to God through Jesus and they have equal acceptability by God through Jesus. No more rule-keeping, no more insider-outsider. And then the third part of God's story, Paul says, and, and get this, you Gentiles who now belong to God's family as one new family, the, God himself is now establishing you as his dwelling place. He has come to dwell in you with his spirit, by his spirit, so the spirit of God, the presence of God, is no longer in the temple that the Hebrews access, now God has broken through and broken out and broken into our hearts and he dwells with us and he is with us personally whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And all of that was good news and all of that was God's story and all of that was Ephesians chapter 1 verses, uh, chapter 1 through 3. And then Paul, writing to the church, transitions and he says, in light of God's story, in light of what I just told you about all this reconciliation and union with Jesus. Therefore, God's story should now transform your story. That which God has done 
should bring newness and life and transformation as you learn to live out God's story and make it a part of your story. There's an impact. There's a change. We call it gospel transformation. It happens to your heart. It happens in your home. It happens in your neighborhoods as you live on mission. And your story has been changed. His, and this is important, right? This is important. And this is problematic. You cannot, if you're a Christian today, you trust Jesus, you're following Jesus, try to process this. The good news story of God is never just information. It's never just information. It's never just stimulates your intellect. It never just fills your empty brain with more information. The good news story of God isn't just informational, it's transformational. It shouldn't be just something you remember. It should be something that brings change. It leads to transformation in your story. So Paul now turns to this question and he says, so how does our Ephesian church grow healthy? What do we do in light of God's story that brings health, that helps us become uh, a church, by the way, God's church, with, which is God's method of telling his story, right? God's method of filling the earth with this good news transformation story is through his local church, which brings help and hope to the world. So, how do churches transform into a healthy body of disciples? And here's how he starts. He says, you start by leading a life worthy of your calling. When I was a senior at Liverpool High School, go Warriors, when I was a senior at Liverpool, uh, like many seniors, um, my buddy Scott and I took a vow of apathy. You know what that is? It's senioritis. It's a vow of apathy. You're like, I am committed to one thing and one thing only, and I'm committed wholeheartedly. I want to focus on this. I am completely devoted to senior year apathy, academic apathy, planning, future apathy. Every part of our lives are completely devoted to apathy in the school especially. So one of the things we did was rather than take any course that would prepare us for our future, we enrolled in an elective called journalism. And a few weeks into the class, the teacher pulled Scott and I, and by the way, she called Scott and I comrades, cohorts, which I look back now and I'm like, I'm not sure the word comrade is a positive connotation, but we felt like she was saying, hey, you two buddies, I got to ask you something. So she keeps us after class and she asks us this question. She says, aren't the two of you uh, honor students? Yeah. And she said, um... And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, so? And she says, I expect you to, to start writing like you're honor students. And I said, why don't you start writing like you're an honor student? <laughs> Committed to apathy. I said, disrupt my apathy, don't you get it? So this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you have been, believer, Christian, You have been set apart, you've been brought from the outside to the inside, and I have redeemed you and saved you and transformed you. I have a separate calling for you. Now, you are not going to be more worthy than you already are because you have been put in union with Jesus and joined to Jesus, so your worthiness is that I see Jesus and his worthiness in you. But now is time for you to start living like the honor student I have made you to be. 
Now is the time to start leading your life worthy of the unique, separate, special forces calling that I have called you to live. So in other words, start acting like the person you are. Start living the the life that I have set you apart to live. And Paul says, you are special to God. He did something special for you. Start living like you're someone special as a part of God's family. Not better, special. Does that make sense? So then what is it, what does it mean that someone would lead a life worthy of your calling? Well, here's what Paul says in chapter 4. He says, therefore, right, in light of God's story, therefore, here's the beginning of your life change, I beg you. It's a strong word by Paul here. I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And I noticed something here I wanted to point out to you, that this letter is not written to future missionaries and local church pastors. This letter is written to the body of Christ. And what does he say about the body of Christ? You have been called by God. And we have to be so careful that we don't interpret calling to mean people that have a special ministry role or responsibility as pastors or missionaries. All of the body of Christ has a calling. All of the body of Christ, all of those disciples who've trusted Jesus have a unique calling. It is not a separate calling or anointing for those who are in church leadership or traveling around the world as missionaries. And when someone's called by God, should we start to believe or start to own this attitude that, look, I'm special because I have this unique calling by God. Does this generate pride? Is it supposed to generate power? Is it supposed to generate positional authority as those who are somehow on the right side against those who are on the wrong side? No. This calling has been done for us. This calling has been made despite us. This calling is a work of God by His grace that doesn't change our level of confidence in ourselves, but instead our dependence on God. So it's a move, it's a, it's a positional change that God gives us by His grace. So here's what he says. So because of your calling, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other and make allowances for each other's faults because of your love. So here's the first building block. If you're going to live worthy of your calling, the first building block here is character. It's the inner life of character that is laid into position. And look at the words that Paul chooses. Humble, gentle, patient, making allowance and love. That's the building block. So if we're going to be a healthy church, we start with humility and gentleness. We start with love, making allowance. And this is verse 2. It's important for us to recognize what humility is not, what, it, what gentleness is not, and what um, making allowances for each other, or patience, and, and what that's not. Now, be careful to understand that being humble does not mean being shy. It means restraining our sense of entitlement that someone should serve me. You restrain that. And it means focusing on someone else's care and attention, not feeling like, well, I'm entitled to care and attention. It means restraining that, and then you focus on someone else's care and attention, and you choose to promote the best interest of somebody else. That's humility. Where do we get this picture? Jesus did it. Laid his own life down. We heard this in the marriage minute. He came to serve, not be served. And then we should be careful to understand what 
gentleness means and what it doesn't mean. This is important. Being gentle does not mean being weak. doesn't mean that. This isn't saying, look, Christians, live your life worthy of your calling that God has made, so get out in the world and be weak. Instead, this word, this word gentle is important. And uh, I, I've, I've never heard, I should say, in talking with some other pastors, we have come to uh, discover this past um, election season and this past political season, uh, we have heard similar comments that are being made to us that go something like this. These aren't the exact words, but the implication is this. Pastor, I really appreciate your desire to be gentle. But in this day and age, we need pastors to be strong. Now, what's the implication? If you're gentle with people, what are you? You're weak. And I got a question for you. If you've ever raised children who are disrespectful, disobedient, and misbehaved, is it weak? Is it weakness that you lash out in anger at them? Or how many of you would agree, I mean, that's strength. It's strength to restrain yourself. It's, it's strong to be gentle with people who deserve a little firmness, right? Or a little um, discipline. In other words, uh, Paul is trying to say here that there's a gentleness among believers that is not weakness, but is willing to be kind when someone's unkind to them. There is a willingness of the body to be compassionate rather than use force and aggression. Gentleness means being willing to be someone who lifts someone up and brings encouragement rather than knocks somebody down and bullies them with their words. That's what gentleness means. Being patient doesn't mean passive. I used to wonder at times. My dad was a real soft-spoken man, and... Um, Sometimes he wouldn't get a word in edgewise for, I don't know, like weeks in our house. And one time I remember mentioning to my mom that um, I'm always interested in how dad became so passive. And she corrected me. She said, your dad's not passive. You, you, you got to understand something. What your dad is demonstrating is patience. And I thought to myself, I can see that. I can see that. There's a patience to believers who belong to Jesus. And in that patience, it means a long-suffering to the faults of others. It means that you're confident that God's at work bringing change to someone else, and you may not be a part of the story and accelerating it. You may just be patiently letting God... And, and let me ask you this, just for the sake of seeing how true this is. How many of you feel like someone who loved you in your family or faith... They loved you, and they let the Holy Spirit grow you very patiently. Would you raise your hand if anybody let the Holy Spirit grow you patiently? They weren't kicking and screaming that it's got to hurry. If you have, you know, if you've got middle schoolers, you're like, you might be in panic mode that it's not going fast enough. Over time, we see God at work, and we recognize that that spiritual growth takes time because we're all a work. In progress. And so, in light of God's story, we now effort, we put an effort in to maintain the unity of the church, to contribute our gift, and also to grow into maturity. And the Spirit creates in us a special togetherness. 
And that togetherness leaves us with the role and responsibility to keep yourselves united. Now, I want to make sure that you see the word keep yourselves because it doesn't say make yourselves united. You know why it doesn't say that? Because we already are united. When you belong to Jesus, you belong to his family, he's already done the work to unify. And now we get the job of just protecting that rather than uh, undermining that. So we protect that and we promote it and we avoid everything that we might say or do to sabotage the unity of the body. And notice that the calling here is not only into Jesus, but also into the unity of the church. When you got called to place your faith into Jesus, you didn't just come into unity with God, you also were joined into unity with the body, the family, the unity of his church. And this is not about unity between churches, between our church and another church or this American church with the uh, Asian church, but unity between body members in the local church at Ephesus. It's a relational unity within the church, and it starts with union with Jesus. And then we're built on a block of new, humble character, and he says, make every effort. So we make the effort to keep ourselves united in the Spirit. We bind ourselves together with peace. Now, if you are from or you're currently rooted here in the Western culture, this unity is not a virtue. In fact, the virtue in the Western culture is opinion. That's the virtue. That's what sells that's what people want to see. That's what people pay for. That's why they subscribe to the channels or the, or, or the podcasts or the, or the subscriptions that, that they have. They, they subscribe for opinion. And in the Western culture, that is a premium. Aggressive, hyper-ambitious, hyper-focused on advancing and, and uh, accelerating. And this might be, this might be why well-meaning attenders send their lead pastors couple times a week, AOC videos. Now, AOC, not meaning the congresswoman. AOC videos. A couple times a week, most lead pastors get videos that are in some way categorized as activism, outrage, or correction. And we get sent these videos so someone can correct what we've been saying or the way that we view the world, or they can share some outrage with us, or they can kind of hopefully spark some activism in that particular cause, right? And we all, are we all getting them? We're all getting them, right? We're all sending them? Well, some of us are sending them. I have found videos a great way to learn and a great way to grow, uh, um, a great way to inform ourselves. But this means that the opposite of these qualities, undermining peace and undermining unity, strangles the local church. It strangles the health, and it starts to pull the church in all different directions. One of the things, if you take our Roots track, highly recommended, even if you took it years ago, I recommend you enroll and take those three Sunday mornings. Pastor Yon will teach you something that is so important for us here, and it's this idea that we are unifying around the essentials. Here's what we say, in, in the essentials, unity. Closed-fisted, we're gathered around the things that are important to saving faith, the reliability of Scripture, the nature and character of the, the, the Trinity, the Godhead. How does Jesus save us? And then, in non-essentials, we have freedom. Freedom to develop our own convictions, freedom to interpret non-essentials a certain way that might be different from a church down the street, but you're welcome to be here as long as you allow freedom in the non-essentials, but in all things, love. 
When you disagree, when you're an activist, when you are outraged, when you somehow um, believe someone needs correction, all of that is expressed in love. In essentials, unity. You're part of the family. In non-essentials, freedom. You can develop your own interpretations and your own convictions um, in areas that are not essential to saving faith and how God changes our hearts and saves our soul. But in all things, love, and we talked about that last week. Paul is saying, make every effort. So how can you proactively help? Now, this is, this is important. And our church family, I hope over time that we catch on to this. I don't know that we haven't already caught on, caught on to this, but um, there, is, there is so much peace in our church family, and I think it comes from a lot of being unified in the right things. But here's one way for us to protect the peace, and that is learning that in the, in the Scriptures, in the church family, contending is biblical, quarreling is sin. Contending in the faith and for the faith without quarreling. What does that mean? Contending means I am going to challenge false teachers who are presenting false gospels. But I'm not going to quarrel about something that's my own personal conviction, my own values, my own preferences. I'm not going to quarrel over that. And some of you, this, let me tell you, I mean, I, I, for the most part, our church family, these last few years with all this division and all this disunity and all this painful backbiting and whatever, for the most part, I am so grateful for our church family who has contended for the gospel and is un, standing firm in the face of false teaching and false gospels, but is not spewing all this division and, 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 and backbiting and slander over things that are just someone's conviction or non-essentials or maybe someone's cause, someone's activist cause. And I'm so grateful. So we have to be careful that we're not too soft on false teaching and too hard on our own personal preferences and convictions. Does that make sense? We're not too hard or too soft that somehow we're able to... Um, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for a church family member to really zap another church family member over a government policy, a government law, um, or government overreach while watching and reading all the prosperity gospel material. And I always think to myself, if I were to be really an activist, I would be an activist to protect my heart against the prosperity gospel rather than protecting my uh, other people about government overreach or whatever laws or policies are, are fixing to... Um, can I say fixing? Is that okay? How many of you would say, that's really my language, Pastor. You, when you say fixing, that's my language. How about finna? No? Okay. Trying too hard, is that right? Is that what that was? Okay. So, um, contend, church family, contend without quarreling. Right? We contend for the truth of the gospel. Uh, and we're making our own effort. So why should we make this effort? And Paul gives us this great motivation. Here's why. He says, because the God who saved you, the Jesus who you belong to, the spirit that's in you is one. There is unity. There is one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord. There's one faith. There is one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all, who is in all, and who is living through all. There's all this oneness, 
all this togetherness, all this union and unity when you belong to Jesus, all this shared source that we are living in and living through that's alive in us. And, and he's describing the unity that each of the three persons of the God, right? There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and equal of them, all, all of them are fully God. Each of them and all of them are completely different, but they're equal, and all of them are serving the other. Every church he gathers under, every church God gathers under Jesus is a loving community full of people who are different, but equal, and who are serving one another. And we get that from, as it flows out of the unity of our Creator, it's how we're motivated and where we find it. So we get to rejoice in any of the diversity of the body. We get to rejoice in any diversity that emerges in the church family. And we make every effort to be in unity with people who are um, different from us, but we receive them, we rejoice with them, we rejoice in their diversity from different cultures and backgrounds and languages. And of all people on the planet, the church should be celebrating that because they come from the one source that we all share together. We gather into and under that unity, one gospel faith and shared relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And this is not a passive posture. This is something that we have to offer. And you have something to offer to that unity. And Paul talks about it here in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, contribute your gift. Keep yourselves united and then contribute the gift that you've been given by God. What does that mean? Well, join the church's counterculture. And the counterculture of the church is a church of contribution, not a church of consumption. This is extremely difficult. This is extremely challenging. Because culture starts to shape the way that we see the world. So we see the world as a consumer. Everywhere I go and everyone I meet has something that will help me or benefit me. I am able to get something from them. But when you belong to God's church, he says, I've given you something to contribute to them, not get something from them. If you're looking for a church, if you're browsing around for a church, maybe you're shopping churches online, which is like standard now. Maybe you're here and you're trying to size up North Central Church and trying to figure out where you're going to land and put your roots down. The best way to think about, one of the best ways to think about where you're going to land is to ask this question. Where can I contribute? Rather than, what can I receive? What can I get? What, um, so you're asking questions. And it's important for us to recognize the consumer culture and to reject dragging the consumer culture into the church family. Why? Here's why. Because biblically, all believers have been given a gift in order to contribute to the strengthening of the body. And without the contribution of your gift, the church is weaker. The church is weaker. We don't just have God's gifts, we are God's gift to the church. We are not meant to be consumers, we're intended to be contributors, and that's one of the marks of the church. Here's where he says it. He says, however, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Each one of us has been given a special gift. And these abilities were not given for our personal satisfaction. These gifts that were given to us were not given to us to build our personal reputation. These gifts were given to enrich the life and strengthening the life of other people in our church. And we put to use these diverse gifts and we put them to use in unity and we do so to build the church. And this is a game changer. 
And this helps us to say, where can I, in, where can I give to this church family rather than where can I, or, or how can I get something from this church family? And inevitably, just like in a marriage, the more you give, you discover that while you're giving, you're also receiving. You're receiving from other people who are giving. And if you need help discovering, so if I have a special gift and God gave it to me, how do I know what it is? Similarly, in our Roots track, we help you discover that, see how to kind of do a gifts inventory. And some of you, most people probably already know what their gift is. And uh, I learned a long time ago my gift was taking. I mean, effortless, natural. I was like, wow, this is a supernatural size gift. Of There's a lot of gifts. Several of them are outlined in the Scriptures in the New Testament, and everybody has a God-given gift that you can contribute. Look at this. Now, these gifts... Paul's going to narrow in on a few here. These are the gifts Christ gave to the church. He gave the gift or ministry of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Oftentimes these are elders who are overseeing and shepherding the church, and they have different gifts and ministries in these areas of apostles, beginning and starting and initiating something new. Or maybe it's a, a, a gift of uh, a prophetic gift of speaking uncomfortable truths for provoking change and transformation and conviction. Or the evangelist or uh, pastors, or that, that word is often translated shepherd and teacher. And you'll notice that these gifts and ministries are often different from one another. And these are church leaders with special gifts. And this is so important. This is so important. These gifts are not given to church leaders to help make them famous. These gifts are given to church leaders to help make Jesus famous. These gifts are not given to church leaders to help them build their brand. Can I ask you to do something for me? This is going to, I mean, could you do me a favor? When you see the day you notice that I've released my own logo, would you, what could you do for me? Would you come to my house? Come to my house, knock on my door and say, Pastor, remember when you talked about contending? I'm not quarreling with you. I'm contending. You're bananas. Why do you have a logo? And I'm like, oh, it's so good though because like there's four letters, D-H-C-W, and I could do it. Just kidding. The gifts that God has given church leaders are to serve and strengthen and equip and coach the church to be actively engaged in strengthening the body. The joy of a church leader is the activation of the church body into bringing strength by their giftedness. Church leaders model it. Church leaders coach it. Church leaders train church members and they release them to bring strength to the church. And in the end, Jesus has filled the church with himself, not with the foolish church leader who's got a logo and a brand and a following, a celebrity following. Now, a lot of church leaders who have followings can't help it, right? They've got a book out. They've got a channel out. They're teaching and preaching, and somehow there's an increased following. But do you know what it looks like when it goes from a following to a brand? Do you know what I mean? The gift that God has given church leaders is to invest in the local church for the building up of God's kingdom locally, not their kingdom globally. 
And we contend for that and say, this is a Western culture phenomenon. And it's been brought to you by internet and media, the ability to communicate. And so it's so, but did we, did we, can we make a deal? Would you come to my house if I have a brand? If you notice, I get a logo. Would you notice? Unless it's a really good logo. In which case, I'll be selling merch and you could buy, <laughs> buy that. Some of you already know. Dude, you're not going to ever have a brand. <laughs> I mean, come on. This isn't selling outside this four, these four walls. Um, so, it's important, right? And the church leaders have a responsibility. Check this out. This is, this is a big deal. What is the responsibility of a gifted church leader? If they're not supposed to have a brand and a cult following around the world outside the local church, what are they supposed to do? Well, their responsibility is to equip God's people. It's focused on God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Model, coach, train, release. Model, coach, train, release. Serve, elevate the body. Get out of the way. And let Jesus take the credit for the strength of the church family rather than the church leader. And this is how our church will grow. It gets a, it, it's a team game, and you are a gifted player on the team. Pastors should not be the professional ministers that are doing the work of ministry. Who does his work? God's people do his work to build up the church. And the minute that church body, the members of the church start to back off and say, well, this ministry should be done by the clergy, by the hired professional. Um, you know, I'm a Yankee fan, and I don't want to see Aaron Boone get suited up and put a helmet on and go hit third in the lineup. Aaron Boone's the manager. He's the coach. He's got a team of coaches. I want the gifted players doing the damage to the Red Sox. We're 2-0. That was a word of the Lord for all of you. We're undefeated. Yankees are undefeated. They might go undefeated. I mean, they haven't lost. Who knows? So, uh, Christian growth, it's not about growing. And this is important too. It's one last thing, one last thing. Christian growth is never about and not about a church attender's longevity or a church attender's tenure. Church, um, personal growth, spiritual growth is not connected to how long someone's been in the faith. It could be, um, but instead, we have to be so careful that we don't make any connections between my maturity and how long I've attended a church or how long I've been a Christian. It's not uncommon for someone to say, Pastor, why am I telling this? I'm telling you this because I've been a member here for 40 years. Or, I am telling you this because I've been here since the early 1900s. While that person is due respect and honor for their faithfulness, right? Have you discovered, have, have you discovered any of your coworkers who are 50 years old, who functions, communicates, and works on your team like an adolescent? You ever discover that? Anybody have employees who's an employer and has no an employee and you thought, I was completely thrown off. I was completely surprised to discover that though you are aged 50, you work like you're an adolescent. Right? Because maturity is not the fruit of longevity. Something else has to occur in order for someone to 
grow mature. And leading a life worthy of your calling means that you grow in maturity. Not just time served, not just faithfulness, not just logging minutes and logging hours. I remember when we were in college, sitting in the back row at one of the required general education courses. And the same was true for when we finally got into our major and started to take courses that were very specific to our major. I remember the knuckleheads in the front row constantly asking questions of the professor. All of them were adults. Here I am, 20 years old, and I don't want to learn from the professor. I want to get out of class. I want the class to end. I don't want someone dumb to ask a question. Now, as if they're trying to learn and then keeping the whole thing going. Like, come on, come on. I've got to get to the cafeteria. Lucky charms, they're not going to be there all day. In other words, I was logging time in the classroom, not necessarily learning anything. And then semester would give way to another semester and another semester and another semester. And now I look back and I say, if I enrolled in college, you know where I'm sitting? Front row. You know what I'm doing? Raising my hand. You know what I'm saying? I'm asking questions. Why? Because I want to learn. I want to learn. And I would learn in one semester. It wouldn't take me four years to get a degree. I would want to learn all that I could as fast as I could because learning is growing and growing is maturing and you start to change and you have to be careful that while you're here together on Sundays, be careful to do more learning than listening. When you're trying to pray and talk to God and maybe you're journaling or you're reading some stuff where you're growing on your own in between Sundays, be careful that you're not just listening, but you're learning and growing and maturing. Paul's got a lot to say about this, by the way. Um, he is so, it's, it's so important for us to catch this. You, this will continue, this maturity, until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. So what's the maturity? We're going to be unified in our faith. We're going to know about Jesus, be built up by the body, and, and God is going to be revealing more and more to us about Jesus through his Holy Spirit. And we will become mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So our goal is not longevity, it's Christ-likeness. Jumble, uh, uh, um, humble, gentle, patient with somebody in their, allowing them to fail in their, in, in their flaws and in your love. Then, when this happens, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. And we love their logo and love their brand. No longer immature. What is that? Sound doctrine and discernment. Sound doctrine and discernment. Knowing what's essential, knowing what's not essential, understanding the nuances of sound doctrine, our, our, our clear picture of who God is as he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And we grow up. And we mustn't be like children going through fads and crazes. One of the first things I ask myself as a pastoral leader, when something is expected of our church, maybe something's going on culturally in the Christian movement, in the Christian faith, and someone's maybe kind of pressuring me to kind of get involved or throw ourselves in or lead the church in, one of my first questions is, is this a fad? Is this, has this come around before and then it's coming around again? Is this coming now and it's going to be leaving soon? Um, 
So we need to grow up, and we can't be like children who are just going through successive crazes or phases, or like boats that are just kind of drifting out to sea with no anchor. And this is the danger for all churches, whether it's the latest experiential trend, whether it's a church growth strategy or a hot new top 10 Christian book, prideful and prayerless intellectualism or or some nuanced or maybe even just stingy materialism. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Speaking the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. So we need these truthful conversations, truth-filled conversations with each other. Such a great form of Bible learning. Um, One of the ways that we learn the Bible here is we sing the Bible. We sing the truths of the Scripture. It's a lot to say and it's a lot to sing, but we believe that you sing what you believe and eventually you're going to believe what you're singing. It gets in your heart. You get roots down. And you find yourself facing crisis or you hear your kids uh, starting to kind of hum and sing along with the sound doctrines that will anchor their life while the storm blows in. Having these truthful conversations at home, in the hallways, in the classrooms, it helps people mature. And this Bible that reveals the truth about who God is and it actually describes to us the love of God, it's never optional. God does something special. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow. Each part helps the other part grow so that the whole body is healthy, so that the whole body is growing and full of love. Each part, every one of you, does its part. You have a gift to help other parts grow, to give that gift so the whole body is healthy. This is developed in other places in the New Testament. You know, Paul kind of uses this metaphor where the church is like the body where you got a hand and a foot and the hand can't say to the foot, you know, they've all got to be functioning on their own in a healthy way. But we can only do this together. We can only do this all together. To experience Jesus' full life transformation, live worthy of the calling, you have something to contribute. You have something to invest. You have to alertly, alertly and proactively resist just being a consumer. Instead saying, I'm going to contribute. I don't know where or how, but I'm going to find that out. I'm going to pursue that path. Sometimes when I get it in my mind that I have to have a local coffee roaster latte, sometimes when I get it in my mind, I think to myself, I want one of these. No, no, check that. I need one of these. I need one of these right now. And then I think about where a local roaster is. And you know what I discover? Sometimes... It's nowhere near where I'm at. But it's not too much of a stretch for me to think, but I can get there, and I can get there by going the extra mile. I can get there by taking a detour. I can go get there by maybe showing up a little bit late to this thing where it wouldn't be that bad if I did. In other words, I'm willing at times to do anything that I need to do in order to do what I want, to get what I want. And I wonder, too, if we could convert that kind of ambition and that kind of focus, not just in getting something that we want, but apply that ambition to give something that someone else needs. 
little extra, little more, right? Am I doing this on my own so God kind of accepts and receives me? No, we already established that. Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses uh, all the way to chapter 3. He's done all the work, and now we're just making the effort to live like we're the special, unique church body and belonger to Jesus that he's made us. And we get to be the church. You get to be. We get to be the church that we would want to experience. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful today for um, the uniqueness of our church family, the unity in our church family. We're grateful today, God, that you have knit together our hearts around the generous, self-sacrificing love and life of Jesus. We're grateful that you have um, empowered us with gifts and that you haven't gathered a room full of spectators and a room full of um, uh, um, people who are completely devoted to consuming but have sensed the transformation to be contributors. And we pray that you would empower us, embolden us, give us discernment and wisdom to be contributors. We pray that all of this would be motivated by and empowered by how you are one. How our faith is one. How our rescuer is the same. Our access to you and our acceptability to you is all based on a level playing field. It's the same. We pray that you'd release us and unleash us as a church that's growing stronger and more mature. That we would lead a life worthy of our calling. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing, uh, celebrate this, all that we have in Jesus, all the hope that rests in Jesus alone.